millions of Ukrainians are set to mark the holidays in a war zone. Russia saying Wednesday there is no Christmas ceasefire in the works and that Moscow has received no peace proposal from Kyiv. Christmas Eve will mark 10 months to the day since Russia invaded Ukraine. Just before dawn, as air raid sirens sounded here, Vladimir Putin launched an all-out assault on this country. As winter renders the territory inhospitable to a ground war, Ukrainians have been dealing with blackouts and water shortages as Russia hits critical infrastructure from the air. Electricity substations have been damaged. Parts are without power, including some medical facilities. Diplomatically and militarily, the conflict seems to be in a holding pattern. But civilians are still preparing for Christmas against a backdrop of missile strikes and shelling. People are incredibly resilient. I mean, there's absolutely no sense that the more Russia bombards the civilian population or civilian infrastructure, the more likely people's resolve is to crack. I'm Aideen Finnegan and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, as 2022 draws to a close, what's the situation on the ground in Ukraine? Dan McLaughlin is reporting from Ukraine for the Irish Times and has won an award for his reporting from the region. Congrats on that, Dan, by the way. Uh, Thank you very much. Tell me, we haven't spoken to you in a little while and it's terrible to say, but I think probably as we go about our lives here in Ireland, we have become a little disconnected from developments in Ukraine. How would you assess the situation at the moment in the combat between Russia and Ukraine? Where where are things happening? Who's got the upper hand? Well, on the front line, it's there is something of a kind of lull. I mean, it's wrong to call it a lull. There, there isn't very much movement in the front line, let's say, right now. There are lots of things going on. There are firefights every day. There's shelling every day. But there isn't a great deal of movement, um, partly because the the weather conditions are atrocious. You know, we've gone from having kind of solid ground at the end of autumn and through the summer, obviously, when it's very dry. And we're in a kind of transition period before we get really cold, frozen ground, probably from January onwards. So it's very, very boggy. It's extremely wet. There are lots of pictures and, and footage coming from eastern Ukraine showing even... Uh, vehicles with caterpillar tracks really struggling to make any movement through fields that are just being reduced to a quagmire, really. So on the on the practical front, it's very hard to move. I would say that there is still very intense fighting around a town called Bakhmut, which is in Donetsk region, which Russia seems to really have focused on now for the last six weeks or so, throwing lots of troops, lots of ammunition, lots of shells at Bakhmut, even though it doesn't have a huge... Um, strategic significance. That is where the key uh, military action is is at the moment, but the front line itself is not moving very much and hasn't moved very much for, I would say, a month or so now. Do we know why Bakhmut has become the focus of such heavy fighting at the moment? It's sort of baffling to to military experts um, because it doesn't have a huge significance. I mean, it's it certainly would be useful for Russia to capture it, but it doesn't have a huge strategic potential for them moving forward. I mean, some people are speculating that because Russia has suffered several, some would say humiliating defeats in the last few months, being driven out of Kharkiv region, being driven out of a lot of Kherson region, losing Kherson city, which was the only provincial capital that the Russians captured since the full invasion on February 24th, they just want to take... Something. I mean, that's almost how it seems now. They want something. 
that they can show on Russian television, that Putin can hold up and say, look, we have a victory. Even though it doesn't have enormous strategic significance, it seems to have taken on more of a kind of symbolic significance that after these defeats, Bakhmut has been where Russia has been fighting for a while without taking it. And it's just said, this is, they believe, achievable. Let's do it because we haven't had a victory in a long time. Okay. You mentioned about the weather there deteriorating as winter tightens its grip. And in recent weeks, Russian forces have been using those conditions as a weapon in and of itself by wrecking two thirds of Ukraine's national grid with missile strikes and leaving hundreds of thousands of people without power and heat. Just as these freezing temperatures really grip the country, what's life like for people there at the moment, Dan? It is very tough for a lot of people. Um, I mean, as you say, it's only in the last uh, six weeks, maybe, that these these very, 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 very heavy repeated hits on the the national grid have started to to really have a big impact on people's lives. There have been, I think, eight. Uh, major waves of uh, cruise missile strikes and drone strikes, they come all over the country. Literally all over the country from east to west, mainly striking big power stations, substations, bringing down power lines. And what it means now is that for big chunks of the day, hours at a time, uh, the vast majority of Ukrainians don't have power. Heating water on an open fire. It's become routine for Ala. Her home in the eastern city of Bakhmut is without power and running water. So, depending on who you speak to in different areas, it could be, you know, four hours on, four hours off. It could be eight hours off. It could be two hours on, then two hours off. It's changing all the time. And um, the energy companies say they're having to do this to make sure there isn't an overload on the system which would cause more technical problems, but also they're turning systems off in certain areas to allow those crucial repairs to be made. So they're trying to manage it as best they can. They're trying to give people uh, guidance every day, kind of a rough timetable as to when there will be power and when there won't be. But oftentimes it just... um, it just comes out of the blue and people may be switched off for, you know, eight, ten hours when they didn't expect to be. So it means people are very concerned all the time about basic things like making sure their phones are charged up, making sure they've got, you know, power banks and things uh, as backups if the main supply goes off. We're all used to in, in cities under living in normal circumstances when it starts to get dark, lights come on and you just kind of go about your normal business. Here it just gets dark and nothing comes on to counteract it. So it's incredibly dark on the streets. You look out and lots of people are just walking with the torches on their phones turned on or they have little handheld torches to uh, guide them home, which is also tricky, you know, because it's snowy, it's icy. It's particularly difficult, obviously, for older people or people with difficulties in getting around. Generally, this makes it far harder for them. But I would say generally they are getting through. They're very stoical. They're very resilient, but I think they are braced for an extremely difficult winter. We're just at the start of it now, and the freezing weather could go through, you know, to the end of February, even into March. So very, very difficult months ahead for Ukrainians. And the attacks on the critical infrastructure that are cutting the power and the water supply, as you've mentioned, they've been condemned around the world. How is Putin justifying those attacks on civilian infrastructure? Yeah, you're right. I mean, Ukraine and all its allies have said, and even um, at the United Nations as well, the United Nations Secretary Secretary General has condemned these attacks. 
Putin admitted himself the other day, yes, we are doing this. But who started it, he said. He claims, you know, he points to an explosion on the bridge that links Russia with Crimea. Vladimir Putin toasting Russian officers with sparkling wine. Appearing in a good mood, he boasted of his bombing campaign on Ukraine's energy infrastructure, arguing that it was a retaliation against Kyiv's aggression. Putin says this was the trigger for all these attacks on the infrastructure in Ukraine. Other than that, he says these are all these are facilities. When he talks about the the power grid, the power stations, he says all these facilities are also helping Ukraine wage war. So, you know, millions of people are being cast into the dark, they're losing their water supplies, the heating's going off, but Putin claims that these are actually de facto military targets. Um, you know, speaking to experts on international law, they say this, this absolutely doesn't stand up. Ukraine says this will be another part of its war crimes case when it finally seeks probably post-war justice against Russia's top political and uh, military figures. Dan, you recently travelled to the town of Bucha and people are familiar with that name here because that's the suburb of Kiev where people were tortured and raped and massacred before the Russians retreated earlier this year. And, you know, we heard horrific stories of bodies in the streets, even belonging to children. And they, that was revealed when reporters were able to get in. I've counted at least 10 dead bodies down this road. They're waiting to be picked up, they'll be taken to the morgue where they'll be recorded and eventually even picked up perhaps by their loved ones. Although the bodies will be removed from this road, the scars that this town is feeling will take a lot longer to heal. How on earth are people coping with that now, eight months on from that ordeal? Yeah, it was an absolutely horrendous um, situation in Bucha. It was occupied for about a month in March um, before... Ukraine managed to drive the Russian forces away from those Kiev suburbs and drive them back into Belarus. As you say, when people finally got in, reporters, officials, locals started going back, the Ukrainian security services got in, they found evidence of all kinds of war crimes. It's genocide, genocide of Ukrainian population. More than sure is that people in Russia and the Russian government have to pay for that painful price. The kind of things you mentioned there, bodies in the streets, some of them with hands tied behind their backs, mass graves, executions, uh, disappearances, lots of cases in Bucha and in surrounding towns and villages which still remain to be investigated. Lots of missing people. We don't know. We still don't know where they are. This is an incredibly tough legacy, obviously, for people there. But a lot of people did go back as soon as they could. A lot of people went back as soon as Bucha was liberated and tried to repair what they could and get life back on track. And, you know, to some extent, they had some success with that. They managed to get through the warmer weather, spring and summer. But now, obviously, the things that we've spoken about, this freezing weather coming in now, the power cuts, the lack of heating, the problems with the water supply, they're also having a huge impact on people in Bucha. Some of the people I spoke to there, they'd only had in the previous 24 hours, they only had power for a couple of hours. So it's very, very tough. Some of them are living in buildings that are still damaged. Local people that I spoke to there are just hoping they can get enough, you know, supplies in to make the repairs that will that will sort of make their, their, their flats and their houses livable through the winter, but also to get generators in, 
That also becomes expensive because they need fuel for the generators and there aren't many ways to make a living now in Bucha. The humanitarian situation in places like that, even though it's only 25 kilometers or so from the very center of Kiev, really needs to be watched, I think, in the months ahead because there are some vulnerable people there who could really find themselves in, in big trouble if, if they don't get what they need as quickly as they can to get through the next few months. One of those people, those locals that you spoke to was 31-year-old Vitaly Huck. Can you tell me about his story? Yeah, he's got a very interesting story. He's originally from Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine and he spent time, you know, a lot of time actually from 2014 until recently fighting the Russian-led separatists in eastern Ukraine when they took over parts of the Donbass region. But he found himself in Kiev on February 24th when... Uh, the full-scale invasion began this year. He wasn't in the military at the time. He'd been given a, a, a medical discharge because of, of, of medical problems he suffered as a result of, of situations he'd been in on the front in the East before. But he went straight to... He was living in Bucha, so he went straight to that area and joined the Volunteer Defence Force, which thousands and thousands of people did all over the country. And he and his volunteer force um, in that Bucha area, places close by like... Irpin and Moschun, they fought against the Russian troops as they came in. You know, it was a time when, well, very few people, let's say, believed, certainly outside the country, and even a lot of Ukrainians had doubts about whether Ukraine could withstand this full-scale Russian invasion. And it was really all hands on deck, you know, and, and, and it meant lots of volunteers getting guns, uh, learning to use new weapon systems and getting out and using them as best they could in that sort of ring of commuter towns like Butcher outside Kiev. And they they made a huge contribution to, to pushing the Russians back. Ultimately, the Russian forces were stopped. And as the Ukrainian forces managed to engage them in a more and more effective way, as time went on, ultimately, you probably remember the pictures from Butcher of columns, columns of Russian armour actually destroyed in Butcher. At the gateway to Bucha and Hostomel, there are the mangled remains of Russian vehicles and the blown bridge which marks the extent of their advance. I mean, quite incredible scenes, really, because people were thinking if they made it to Bucha, surely the Russians will be in Kiev in another two or three days. But no, I mean, the people who were there, the people who defended towns like Bucha had a, a huge heroic role to play in, in protecting Kyiv. And obviously, as Vitaly told me the other day, the fear was that if Kyiv fell, what would happen with the rest of the country? So I think as time goes on as well, we realize more and more how vital those battles were and how crucial a role volunteers like Vitaly and thousands of other people played in stopping the Russians at that key point of, of the invasion. Thinking, Dan, about the sort of nice Christmas that we can all look forward to here and all the things we will be enjoying doing come the 24th and the 25th. And that is exactly how Ukrainians were this time last year. They were having a very similar Christmas, I'm sure. And this year they're getting ready to celebrate it in a completely different way. You know, is there any sense of hope this year for people as they enter their first Christmas during the war? Well, I mean, that's what, one of the amazing things about being here. And it's been this way all the way through. I mean, there are terrible things happening every day. I mean, today, again, another, I think, 13 Russian drones were fired at Kiev. Thankfully, they were, shut, they were shot down by the air defense forces. But people woke up, you know, six in the morning to explosions outside their windows. But people are incredibly resilient. I mean, there's absolutely no sense that 
the more uh, Russia bombards the civilian population or civilian infrastructure, the more likely people's resolve is to crack. I mean, people do talk quite openly about how difficult things are. Strikes, though power to the hospital was also cut, forcing staff to use generators and stored water. At the moment, there is no water in the hospital. But we have stored water. We made preparations beforehand. They share lots of information about how best to get through these difficult situations with the power cuts and the water shortages and everything like that. But it's not a sense of um, a kind of utter desperation. There's a feeling that this is a just war, it's a defensive war. We have, we simply have to do it because if we don't, it will mean complete occupation. It will mean the end of Ukraine as a sovereign, independent nation. And it could mean the end of, you know, Ukraine as a, mm, in, in, a in a cultural linguistic sense as well. I mean, Ukrainians say, from Zelensky down, Ukrainians say that this is genocide. Ukraine wants to, Russia wants to wipe out the Ukrainian people as a nation and, as an, and, and their identity as much as anything else and turn them into Russian vassals, speaking Russian, um, immersed in Russian culture and history and so on. So they feel that, of course, day to day, the practicalities are very hard. You know, it's scary, it's difficult, and the, the winter is going to be extremely tough. And they're finding all kinds of ways to um, to get through this and try to carry on with life as best they can. And that's what they'll do over Christmas and New Year as well. It will be a completely different kind of celebration, but they will do their best to celebrate the fact that Ukraine is still here and Ukraine hasn't been wiped off the map as perhaps Russia intended in February when it launched the all-out invasion. That's amazing after what they've been through that they still maintain that resolve that it's as strong as ever. And I suppose there is a certain amount of battle weariness because, well, recently the president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, he appeared on David Letterman's Netflix show, uh, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. And while they were recording the interview, the missile strike sirens began blaring all around them. Yes, I can hear the siren. What, what should we do? Nothing. In any other circumstance... He says, we do nothing. War has become a habit. I mean, is, is that really how people feel? It's a habit for them now? You know, it, it is like that. I mean, it's another of the inc- very strange and striking things. And one of the sad things, I suppose, as well, in a way, was how early in the war, I remember, you know, even in after a couple of weeks of bombing in... In Kiev, I remember the air raid siren would go off, but a lot of people would just carry on their their business. They would just carry on doing what they were planning to do, you know, going to see friends, doing some shopping, getting water in, doing whatever it might be, because they thought we can't, you know, put life on hold. We can't freeze every time the air raid siren goes off. We just have to hope, we just kind of have to hope for the best. Each time. I mean, that's changed a little bit now because these attacks on civilian infrastructure really did scare people. And again, there were attacks on the center of cities like 
Kiev, which they hadn't been for a long, long time. So that unnerved people again, and and it made people more people go down into the shelters and things and pay attention to the uh, to the air raid alerts. But people have become you know inured to lots of very very tough and strange things in the past ten months or so. When do you negotiate with with Russia? Negotiate with Russia uh, only when they are ready to leave our territories. Yeah, could it be finished before the 24th of February? My feeling is that by the end of the spring, this war will over. Will over. In terms of a resolution, you know, we're still very much at the same place we've been at for months. The Kremlin saying, you know, we're not, we're not negotiating unless, you know, Ukraine accepts that we're taking this chunk out of the east of the country and Ukraine is saying absolutely not. So how do you see the, the next couple of months playing out? Yeah, I don't see any chance really of, uh, of a resolution because you just, on the one hand, you know, you have Ukraine literally fighting for its survival. And on the other hand, you have a Russia, which when you look at the public messaging, you look at the uh, the way the Kremlin frames it and all the Kremlin, pro-Kremlin politicians. I mean, the political world in, Mos- in Russia is now only pro-Kremlin. I mean, all dissenting voices have been silenced one way or another. When you turn on Russian television, you see it's, it's wall-to-wall propaganda, which depicts the conflict, not as a war between Russia and Ukraine, the Kremlin and its television channels and all its other media arms is saying this is really a fight against NATO. We're fighting the Western world. We're fighting the full power of NATO on Ukrainian soil. That's how Russia explains why things aren't going well for it in Ukraine. So the way Russia is, the way the Russian leaders are depicting it is this is a, this is like a defensive war. If we don't fight Ukraine now, and if we don't fight so-called NATO in Ukraine, then the next step will be they will be in Russia. And that they portray this as part of a big Western plot to undermine Russia, destabilize Russia, get Putin out of the Kremlin, and even potentially to break up Russia in the future. So there is absolutely no sign of the Russian public being prepared for any kind of uh, settlement or any kind of resolution. There's no sign of an off-ramp, as they call it, being prepared for Putin. And there is absolutely no um, expectation of that in Ukraine. Ukraine just expects this to go on until Russia is forced to stop. That's why Ukraine gets frustrated when it hears some Western politicians saying we need to take Russian security interests into account, we need to provide some kind of face-saving way for Putin to back out of this. Because they don't think Putin has any intention of stopping. And if he does, then it will just be a temporary stop. It'll just be a temporary pause to rearm, to reconstitute his military and come back at a later date to do it all again. So Ukraine's not, doesn't dare to stop and there is no sign of, uh, of Russia being willing to stop on the other side. A sobering thought as we head into a new year. Dan McLaughlin in Ukraine, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and myself, Aideen Finnegan. In the News will be back on Wednesday.